Hi, I'm Courtney Brown at Emory University. Welcome to my class in science fiction and politics. Well, let me just give you a little background for the course. The course Science Fiction and Politics has been taught a few other places in the country. Berkeley had a course in it, a couple other places, but it's very rarely taught. There has to be a particular interest. Now, there are interests among faculty members in science fiction, but not too many faculty members sort of bridge the gap and actually put them all together and actually produce the course. Only a few people actually in the whole country have actually done a course like this. Let me give you an idea, though, of why it's important, why it's a good idea to study it in political science. And then let me get some of your feedback on what you were thinking about when you're signing up for the course. First of all, science fiction has been one of the most important influences in my life in terms of my scholarly stuff because, this is very crucially, it raises new ideas, ideas that you simply don't get in the social scientific literature. It raises new ideas about politics that you simply can't get in any journal of political science or sociology or economics or any book. Any political science or social science, sociological book, economics book, you just can't get some of these ideas. And one of the things that really marks you as an academic is your creativity in coming up with new ideas, coming up with new ways to think about things. And so science fiction gives a scholar that advantage of being able to think in new directions. It's not just that you get the ideas themselves from science fiction, but that science fiction helps you to twist yourself out of your current mindset and to look at the world in a completely different mindset and coming up with new ideas. Now, you're all freshmen. This is a freshman seminar. But it's not too long from now that you're going to be seniors. And then you're going to be thinking about what to do next. So we're going to go around the room and talk about what you think you're going to do next. But, you know, one of the things you might want to think about is whether you want to do work as an academic or, as a, you know, some of you may want to go into law or into business, those classic professional type of programs. But scholars like myself, academics, we get paid for sitting, thinking, and writing books. I mean, that is a luxury that you can't pay for. I mean, it is just unbelievable to be paid to sit, to think, and to write books, to come up with ideas to write articles, to write journals. We are the ones that actually help to create the intellectual infrastructure for the whole planet that helps the species move on, the propagation of ideas. Now, if you become a lawyer, well, lawyers are good. They need, you know, society needs lawyers. We have problems. They have to be resolved. But if you think about it, a lot of lawyers become ambulance chasers. They go in with altruistic ideas but then they have to pay the mortgage, and then it's one case after the next, after the next, after the next, in order to pay your bills. If you go into sales, sales is good. Commercial stuff is good. We rely on the sale of stuff in order to make money for the country, for the economy. But, you know, if you're into sales, it's one sale after the next. And after every sale, 
you've got to sit and you think, where's my next customer? It's a constant, it's a rat race. It's a constant run after things. Medicine. A lot of people are very discouraged with medicine because with managed health care, you've got 15 minutes per patient. And it's one of those situations where you're simply saying, next. You're not really working with people and helping them out. But you, a lot of doctors complain that they become drug pushers in the sense that they just, they're not really solving people's problems in their lives that are causing them to get these problems, but they're just giving them things that help patch them up a little bit while they go out and do the same old bad behaviors that got them into the trouble in the first place. It's a very pessimistic view of it, though. What's that? That's a very pessimistic view of it. I mean, you say that, for example, a lawyer is just an ambulance chaser. Yeah. That isn't always necessarily true. I mean, by your same argument, a academic is a paper pushing that they just have to churn out one book after another in order to keep their job, in order to keep tending. That's a good point. I am making a clear biased perspective here. Excellent. And, and what you're saying is absolutely correct. I'm making a perspective that lawyers, I'm, I'm painting a pessimistic view of law, of medicine, business, and so on like that. And I'm doing it on a purpose. I'm doing it because I want to really contrast what is the potential as someone who wants to do work in, in social science, as an academic, as a scholar, as a thinker. And to have the free time to be able to do that is the key. Now, among medicine, you're absolutely right. People generally go into medicine for altruistic purposes to solve situations. And a lot of them actually do, especially, you know, surgeons and stuff. And a lot of times I've gone to the doctor with a problem and they have fixed it. So, and, and I really rely on doctors to be able, and doctors and nurses to be able to fix these problems. So I'm painting a, a correctly correctly corrected, meaning you corrected me correctly, uh, a, a pessimistic view. But it's not to really put down those professions. It's just that when students get into college, they have a, a, a rosy idea of what these professions are. And, and there are no, really no blemishes on those professions. You just think about being a lawyer, great. Being a doctor, great. Being an MBA, business person, great. So I was sort of putting little cold water on those fires just for a second and you're correct uh, you know not completely correct uh, not completely uh, on the up and up because there are there are altruistic lawyers and there are altruistic doctors that are able to work around the system and get something good done uh, change people's lives in the, in the better but there is that issue of time Lawyers really have to fight to get time to do anything else. Doctors really have to fight to get time to do anything else. Business people really have to fight to get time to do anything else. Academics are paid to get time to do anything else, to do the thinking, to do the thinking, to come up with ideas. And, and the reason I'm pushing this is not to convince you to become academics, but to show you the importance to an academic and to anyone who does social science of why science fiction would be important. Because what if you do have time to write books? What if you do have time to actually sit and think and come up with new ideas? I have seen an awful lot of academics who, as you correctly stated, become paper pushers. <laughs> they don't come up with new ideas.
And a good many academics come up with one idea in their whole life. And that's when they're graduate students. And they come up with one idea. And then if you look at their whole career until they're 90 years old, all of their books, all of their journal articles, is variations on that same idea that they got when they were in graduate student. And they had to come up with something a little bit new as a graduate student, or they couldn't have gotten the dissertation finished and couldn't have gotten the book published to get tenure. So they were pushed. But after that, it <laughs> it's really one manifestation after the next of the same type of article, same type of theme, same type of... And so you really say, as someone who commits himself to, or herself, to thinking as an enterprise, where are you going to come up with these new ideas so that you don't become a cookie cutter of the one idea you had in graduate school and just keep getting new, new copies of it, slightly changed? Well, science fiction is one of those areas where you can do that. You can come up with really new ideas. Get your mind out of the old ideas and then get into some new ideas. But let's go around the room. What what did you think? That's sort of my idea. And then I'm also going to come back to this and sort of tell you what science fiction works really were very fundamental to me in crafting what I do as a political scientist. And when you become seniors, you're going to be writing, hopefully, honors theses or senior papers. You'll be taking a 490. You'll be taking a senior seminar. Well, where are you going to come up with some of the new ideas so that the professor says, wow, that's an original work. Then they write a letter of recommendation for you to go on to whatever you do. And if you do go into medicine, business, or law, where are you going to get the ideas that will help you get out of the rat race so that if you do become a lawyer, just like you're saying, or a doctor, or a business person, where are you going to get the inspiration to not get caught into the rat race? Do you get the idea? Where are you going to come up with these new ideas? How are you going to warp your mind out of the 15 minutes per patient syndrome and to get yourself placed into something, a new way of thinking about whatever. And a doctor perhaps maybe is thinking about alternative alternative forms of medicine or new 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 ideas about treating in traditional care or lawyers coming up with new ways to combat a corrupt system to become make the system better in some way. So how are you going to get these ideas? Well science fiction is one of those ways. But let me shut up just for a little bit and let's just go around the room and just sort of say what what was your sort of you know impressions, even vague ideas of why you're thinking of taking the course and uh, uh, do you like science fiction or whatever and then we'll get into the, some of the deep social science that's available in science fiction as well shall we try start with you Hussein um, yeah sure uh, well it sounded like an interesting course um, I guess we've all viewed politics in the traditional way so seeing it maybe through a science fiction point of view might have been like eye opener like you said it made me a way to like see politics in a new way get some more ideas so seeing that I thought you know it'd be interesting to take it everyone loves science fiction so combined two likes couldn't hurt right have you read much science fiction um not recently but I used to like it you used to like it when you were younger when I was in high school when you were in high school yeah freshman year has been tougher than I thought so 
I yeah. can find more time to read. Oh, that's an issue. That's one of the good things about a course like this. It gives you officially time to read it. All right. Yeah, so it's just, <laughs> that's, that's really good. Let's go back and forth, okay? Jason, what are, you, what are um, your thoughts? Pretty much the same reason. I mean, I like science fiction, and um, I like political science, and it's just kind of two things that I like together, so I would take the class. Wow, okay, that's great. Let me get the pronunciation. Adele? Adele. <coughs> uh, the Adele. Adele. Pardon me? A and then Del, like the herb. Oh, Adele. Yeah. Did I pronounce it okay? Close enough. Okay, go ahead. Uh, I actually got a place I course last semester, and while I like that, it's really the, um, the science fiction. I used to be a science fiction nerd, and I still really enjoy the genre. So basically, once I saw the word science fiction, I knew I had to take the course. Yeah. Okay. That's great. Any particular science fiction works that you ever read in your whole life that you sort of really liked? Mm-hmm. Arthur C. Clarke's Imperial Earth and the Foundation series by Isaac Asimov. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Asimov and Clarke. That's great. Okay. Rachel, what did you think? Um, I've just always been really into politics, like in high school. Like, I'm very involved, and my family's always been really involved, and I just, I've never really viewed it through a science fiction point of view. So. Oh, but you've had a long-standing interest in politics. So this is just a new way to add a dimension to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. That's good. It was, it, what was your name? Kelsey. Kelsey. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm kind of actually in the same way. Um, I've always enjoyed politics and hopefully can have a career in that later um, down the line. And I think that it'd be uh, interesting to see it through a different light and kind of get different viewpoints. So later on, I can view things in different ways. Wow. Okay. All right. That's great. Well, you want to hear my story about why I did, why I wanted to get into this and teach it? Actually, the, one of my colleagues, Mike Giles, has always wanted to teach this course as well. He was my chair when I got hired here 20 years ago, and he. Uh, he always said he was thinking of one day teaching because it has been influential in his life as well, in his academic thinking. And I guess I just beat him to it. No, I, said I, I signed up to it. But there's a lot of academics that actually like it and see an, a relevance to it. Well, with myself, I started out in early life uh, learning how to read with science fiction. I read the entire Tom Swift series. Now, the Tom Swift series, I don't even know if you can buy it anymore. I've got a, the comp- I've got almost a complete collection. I had all the complete collection, but then a few volumes seem to have got misplaced along the years. But Tom Swift was always inventing new things. And I thought that was the super coolest thing to invent new things and build them and fly around the world, sort of like a intellectual Tom Cruise. Okay, you know you the Mission Impossible Tom Cruise, uh, the guy who goes out, always gets the girl, and is always solving problems and always doing things. But imagine doing that through science, not through bravado or heroics, but through thinking, through science. So for me, being the, 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 the cool, sexy you know, image of what is great to be a, you know, the real man type of guy was always use your brain to solve problems. That was always what was really cool. And I remember Gary Larson had a cartoon Remember Gary Larson wrote those comic strips called Farside? And he had a cartoon in which there was this uh, mathematician or a physicist or something like that on a board. (laughs) 
and he was quickly writing down all types of equations of some you know advanced theory, probably of relativity or something. And his and he would have, he had a pouch belly and a and a and a white uh, you know what are those what are those white coats lab coats white lab coat. And his colleagues were sitting around in a seminar room, just like this, watching him write those equations. And they were cheering out, "Good hands, good hands!" <laughs> just like you know, he was a, just like he was a boxer, or just like he was a macho type of guy. But you know, scientists tend to really uh, uh, revel in the idea of using the brain to solve these problems. And unfortunately, in our society, we don't emphasize that on our TV very much. We have images now where scientists are portrayed as nerds goofy guys like if you go to the movie uh, back to the future you've seen that you've all seen that right well the scientist who does that he's sort of a wacko and that's how scientists are and mathematicians are are portrayed and it's very unfortunate in our society that they're not portrayed in a way that is really charismatic because that's one of the reasons we have so few people going into science in this country. It's starting to change now with all of the... Like What's that again? It's starting to change with all of the like CSI and bones and that kind of thing. With the forensic scientists mainly now because that's the more interesting thing. But scientists are being portrayed more as, like you said, charismatic and solving problems and all that thing. I know, this is great. Uh, Adol, this is great. You're actually, uh, I really encourage everyone to be just, let me get the pronunciation perfectly correct. Not not just good enough. Say it one more time. Adil. 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 Okay. Uh, when Adil challenges me and says, you know, but things are changing, this is, this is perfect because that's the last thing you want to become is a stenographer where you just write down whatever the professor says. It's the challenging that is the beginning of the thinking in different ways. And you're right. Some science, I'm, I'm a big fan of a lot of science fiction and uh, on TV. And some of the things that are on TV are changing the way intelligent people are portrayed as well. And that's really good. Star Trek was always a, a problem-solving type of a thing. And that was a good role model. The... Um, uh, the engineers and all the Star Trek series were always relied on to figure out ways to get out of problems. Almost never in a Star Trek series, in a Star Trek episode, do you get the use of force to resolve an issue. It's always the use of some type of the need for brain power to sort of figure out some way to do something. And if you look at the Stargate series, Stargate SG-1 or uh, Stargate Atlantis. Stargate SG-1 has um, uh, well, she's ch- her rank has changed now. Uh, Commander, what is it? Lieutenant Colonel Samantha Carter. Samantha Carter, um, played by I, I Amanda Tapping. Yeah, Amanda Tapping. That's right. <laughs> and uh, Samantha Carter is, you know, a beautiful actress. But what she portrays is really smart. You know, a woman, best brain power on the planet Earth, solving problems, always intellectually, never the use of force to really resolve these fundamental problems. And uh, Daniel Jackson, similarly, a strong, weightlifting, handsome man, 
solving problems through the uh, actually through his interest in archaeology and, and actually he's I believe he's modeled after a a real life person called Zachariah Sitchin who writes books almost identical to the theories that Daniel Jackson comes up with and he, he studies ancient languages in cuneiform and elsewhere from Samaria and the texts of, uh, of, of ancient scripts and comes up with theories and so uh, Daniel Jackson is portrayed with that idea of problem solving as well and Samantha Carter and so on so you know these so you're right although you're absolutely correct the the ideas are changing in some areas and we really applaud it when that happens for myself the big thing that happened in my life I originally wanted to be um, going into politics when I was a freshman at Rutgers Rutgers College in New Brunswick and then I decided I need to have a major so I said why don't I try political science I like that because I like politics but I didn't have such a good time in politics and political science because the classes were so big I mean it was during the Vietnam War and the civil rights movement and everybody was thinking politics they had to try to figure out what was going on because they were going to be shipped off the Nam and killed <laughs> it was everybody was facing their destiny and so political science courses were pandem or everywhere it was just pandemonium in these courses here they were just filled and you couldn't get any personalized attention with the political science professors because there are just so many students so I said let me get out of this I wanted to actually I needed I needed a little bit more work with professors one to one or actually five or six to one <laughs> as, as compared to five hundred to one and uh, I switched and became an English major and then I found out quickly that in English things weren't all that much different because everyone wanted to study Shakespeare so that was the one area I didn't study I went into Renaissance poetry and hardly anybody wanted to do Renaissance poetry so I became an expert in you know Wyatt, Surrey, Dunn uh, Milton was my absolute favorite and I did study Shakespeare but it was the poetry of Shakespeare his sonnets not so much his, his plays because the, the play classes were just too packed and uh, poetry was interesting to me because I was able then to look at ideas from a poetic perspective and that was a little bit like using science fiction you sort of warped yourself out and tried to look at it from a using a poem to produce like a picture of what reality could be like and Milton was Milton I got into because it was just plain so pornographic to be quite honest some of there actually are academics who, who question whether Milton should be taught in the academy because it has such strong pornographic sections and I just thought they were so spectacular the war in heaven with the devils are being tossed out the fallen angels are being tossed out of heaven and they're just filled with pornographic imagery and the and and Satan entering the garden of Eden is a rape a classic rape you know described just like that pubic hairs and everything and I just thought that was so racy at the time so I was reading Milton backward and forward because of the pornography in it and it was 
And, and all of, everyone I was reading Milton to couldn't understand what I was talking about because they said, what are you talking about? That's a Renaissance poet. It's not a pornographer. But I said, no, read this stuff. It's really great. You have to interpret it. You have to understand it. But that's what he was talking about. He was putting all the sexual imagery into uh, Paradise Lost. And so that's why I sort of got into Milton for a while. I thought it was really sort of cool. But again, that was sort of like warping my mind out of what it was normally set in, which is the normal day-to-day stuff. And then I got out of college, and I realized I had a degree in English, and the only thing I could do with it was to drive a taxi. And I couldn't do anything. <laughs> no, one wanted to write, no one wanted to hire someone who was a specialist, a specialist in Renaissance poetry with a high level of knowledge of Milton. So... Um, I, I, I sold steel for National Steel. I sold business machines for a business machines com- place, uh, you know, co- small computers and things like that. I ran a soap business. was once putting $1,500 of soap through my car a month. You know, broke the shocks on my car, toting it around. Did everything I could have possibly imagined. Finally, I realized, hey, those professors had a good life. I want to get back into the academy. So... I started, I I didn't, my bachelor's, my major was in English, not political science, but I had about the same number of credits in political science as English, so it was almost the same as the double major. So I went to the graduate coordinator of San Francisco State University, Richard DeLeon, at the time. He's just retired from San Francisco State. And I walked into his office and I said, I want to be a political science professor. And he said, you know, that's a school that has a master's program but doesn't have a PhD program. So they're used to people going there to get terminal masters to increase their job prospects in in business or public policy or something like that. And so they very rarely get somebody that says they want to be a professor. So that sort of said, okay, let's see about that. My GREs were fine. English major, a little odd, but he wants to be a professor in political science, so we'll see. He had enough credits in political science, and I had two letters of recommendation for law school. (laughs) They weren't even for political science. So I said, but that was before. I really want to be a political scientist. Well, he let me in, and I started courses there. And the one thing I said was, I just don't want to do anything dealing with math. I was really good in calculus in high school didn't have much in college but uh, I did advanced calculus in high school I just don't want to do that anymore I just want to read pages and number books I want to read books and number the pages of whatever I write but this guy had actually gotten a degree from Washington University in St. Louis that's where he got his, his PhD where they specialized in very advanced mathematical applications and political science, both systems theory, rational choice, and statistics. And so he looked at me and he said, you know, you're absolutely right. So Richard DeLeon said, you're absolutely right. Just go in there, write papers, and just number the pages. But you know, everybody else is doing statistics, so you really should know at least a little bit about statistics, just to know what everyone else is talking about. So I said, okay, if you insist, I'll take one course. And so I signed up. And then I went back the next day and he said, you know, Courtney, I was thinking, um, the statistics isn't going to do you any good unless you know how to use it. 
So you have to have some programming. So why don't you do a directed study under me and do it with a, an applied paper but that will involve some programming. So you can use SPSS to do your programming to learn how to you know, manipulate the data. And I said, well, if you think it's really necessary, I'll do it. So I did it. Okay. Then I started to take the stats course and the programming course, and I said, hey, it was sort of fun. I mean, I was actually enjoying myself, and I was turned out to be the best in the class. And then early in that semester, that first semester at San Francisco State, I read the first book that we're going to read in class, which is Isaac Asimov's Foundation Trilogy. There are actually three small books, but I got it as one volume. Most people get it as one volume, but these days they sell it as three separates. They're, but they're, each one is short. And they go like a zip. And so I read it. Uh, the Pardon me? There were two others in the series. There are two more in the series, aren't there? Oh, actually, the series goes on and on and on. But these are the three original ones. And now it's, it's still being created. I mean, some new, some new people are still adding to the Foundation series. And now he, he also merged it with the Robot series, and it goes on and on. But these three are the beginning and the basis of it. So I read this during that first semester at San Francisco State. And they have a, in this there's a lead character called Harry Seldon, who's a social scientist. And he did the coolest thing. He was able to perceive that the galactic empire was going to collapse. And that it was not only going to collapse, but there was going to be a period of like 30,000 years of despair and desolation, awful stuff where the galaxy was going to fall apart, it was going to be just the ruin of everything. And it'll be 30,000 years before it starts to reorganize itself. And he developed a theory that involved a variety of things, but one of the things it involved was the use of mathematics, nonlinear mathematics, to devise a way to bring the galaxy, the galactic order, back in a better way, in fact, better than it was before in like only a thousand or two thousand years. So you don't have to go through 30,000 years of desolation and suffering. And I, and I said, wow, not only to be able to predict the demise of the galaxy, but to be able to creatively, constructively come out with a, a theory and then operationalize that theory to bring what could have been a devastating 30,000 year period to a, a new beginning, a renaissance in just a thousand or two thousand years of a new galactic beginning. I said, that was really great. To be able to use math and other, other things he was developing to do that as a scientist. And he was a social scientist. And then I said, that was really great. And at, at that same time, there was a science fiction American article on a new theory that was being developed by a famous mathematician who won a Fields Medal on the theory of itself, uh, Rene Tom, and uh, he, on catastrophe theory. And the article in the Scientific American was written by a, a scholar called Zeman. And I read that, and catastrophe theory was like right out of Isaac Asimov's stuff. And it was like really great, where you had, you had sudden change, like the collapse of an empire. You know, when things were calm before that, and you had to be able to predict when that collapse would occur and what would be necessary to bring it back. And, and so I went over, the, over to the math department 
at San Francisco State, and I asked about, you know, the catastrophe theory, and the math department person gave me some, one of the professors there gave me some interesting ideas of how much would be required to do something like this. Well, no sooner had the semester ended, but I got Richard DeLeon to read the Foundation Trilogy as well, and he said there's only one place on Earth where you can study to learn that kind of theory. I said, where? I'll do anything. At that point, I was hooked. I was no longer going to be a taxi driver who was an English major. I was hooked. Because of the science fiction and the ideas that came together, I was going to do Harry Seldon type of political science no matter what. It was that commitment that changed everything. And he said, you must go to study under what's the equivalent of Obi-Wan Kenobi or or Yoda. And his name is John Sprague at Washington University in St. Louis. And I said, Washington University in St. Louis? And his name is what? John Sprague? And he says, he does that kind of science and there's no one else on the planet that does. And I said, I will go. (laughs) Now, this may seem crazy, sort of nuts (coughs) to you, but this is what captures the minds of young people. And I was your age. And what happened after that is still going on. I'm still writing books related to the basic field of being able to use nonlinear mathematics to know when societies will come apart, when they will bring back, come back together, merging the other stuff. It's a theory that Harry Seldon devised. Actually, it was Isaac Asimov who devised it, and Harry Seldon was the academic that he talked about called psychohistory, and he pronounced it uh, psychohistory and spelled it P-S-Y-C-H-O history like psychology okay but anyway uh, you know there are some theories of now that perhaps had the word been invented he should have really called it PSI psi correspondent with history psychohistory is spelled pronounced the same way but sounded but you know spelled a little differently but anyway uh, so this idea was all done by Isaac Asimov so later on before Isaac Asimov died and after I had finished my first book using nonlinear mathematics I sent him a copy in New York he was in he was living in his uh, brownstone in Manhattan and I sent him a copy and I just happened to know someone who was whose wife was very close friends with Isaac Asimov's wife and I got his address and I sent him a copy and told him how important it was how important he was in my life and I'd written about him in the preface and he sent me back a card, hand-signed. That was a very treasured thing. You know, He said he didn't think he deserved such praise, but he was thankful for it. But anyway, that's what starts people. So you see you see how ideas that seem like they're just nutso coming from who knows where can influence you and make you do things? Well, one of the things that has marked myself as a scholar has always been I do things differently than other people. Basically, I look at what everyone else is doing and I say, if they're doing that, I'll do something else. I always look for the different approach. And it comes out of the study of poetry, but also the study of science fiction. Science fiction's mark is to think of things differently. To think of a new way of looking at things, not to get into a rut. And new classic science fiction comes out when, great science fiction comes out when you do things differently. Like when we look at Gibson's work on Neuromancer, it was one of the first great works on 
on uh, cyberpunk when we see that now you'll understand so that's where it came he just looked at everything differently and suddenly a whole genre cyberpunk came out so all of these and that's fundamental in influencing your lives this is this is the generation of cyberpunk and it's going to be influencing the use of the net is going to be, the internet is going to be influencing you far greater than it ever influenced anybody anyone previously it's just a huge huge influence but anyway that's that's my story let me pause for a little while what do you have any thoughts about about this how many of you have known have heard of the foundation trilogy Otto you seen it Jason you heard of it now there's no movie of it any is anyone no okay you've never heard of it you know what I'm saying okay it's Kelsey 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 no. Chelsea. Kelsey. Say it one more time. It's like Chelsea, but with a K. Kelsey. Oh, that's yeah. nice. Okay, Kelsey. Kelsey, Rachel, you've never heard of these? Uh, my dad's read it, but I've never. Well, this is going to be a great time for you to, to do it then. Well, there's three. Now, again, Otto's correct. There's many. But there was these were the first three, and these are the ones where the, the only three for the longest time until they started to be added to it. Okay, so... The, the books start with uh, we're, not, we're not reading Prelude to Foundation which actually came, up, came, up, came after that we're starting with Foundation and then we're going to Foundation and Empire and then Second Foundation so uh, they're listed in the syllabus in the, in the proper order but also if you open up the cover for one of them you'll see them in the proper order so the first one we want to write is foundation and then that's the first one and then foundation foundation and empire and then the second foundation this may seem a lot like you're reading a whole book but this is pulp fiction it goes in the night I mean just a couple hours later you're done with this thing I mean it's a really racy story it's really an interesting story so these and actually these these three novels are actually considered one novel and it's just one fat novel actually and it's sort of small print but anyway we're going to be studying them over the weekend and all through next week now there's one other book this is a non-fiction book and it's really short and it's in a series that comes out from Oxford University Oxford University Press called uh, Empire by Stephen Howe a very short introduction and this is a very brief book on the history of empires so if we're actually studying the collapse of a galactic empire we want to be able to look at empires that have formed throughout history and then we can look at the current world new world order or the current world order and see what kind of empires can we sort of think are trying to be made had been made recently been made whatever what's the definition of empire and so on so we want to read this at the same time we're going to spend two weeks on on this and then move on okay now the course has no tests and the grade is determined by two things basically actually three one is participation but the two major things are attendance, just showing up. The only tough thing in this whole course, this is a fun course, I'm in a really fun course. The only hard thing in this whole course is waking up to get here at 8.30. That's the only tough thing. <laughs> and uh, in fact, this, this course would absolutely pack out 
if it was held at 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock or something. It's just the 8.30 issue that makes it so difficult. But just try to remember to get the reading done and to go to bed a little early on Monday nights and Wednesday nights. And my last freshman seminar, which was uh, on modeling and politics, I had some students that just couldn't get to bed before four in the morning. Uh, well, they had two hours sleep and they walked in here. They, uh, there were things happening in the dormitories. They just had to talk about. And, and you know, you're leaving your parental home for the first time for a long period and you're in the dormitory and there's so many things to talk about with friends and you're no longer being told by parents, go to bed, do this, do that. That unbridled freedom really takes over. But at some point you have to say, okay, what the parents were talking about really did have some logic to it. If I go to bed at 4 o'clock, it really is hard to wake up at 6 and uh, be awake. So just on Mondays and Wednesday nights before our Tuesday and Thursday class, just try to, <laughs> try to go to bed by midnight. It really helps. I have to try to, that, try to do that myself, too. I'm always trying to do extra work at night. And then what we're going to have is papers. So what we're going to do is just write papers. And the papers are as follows. I grade the papers on an acceptable or unacceptable basis. And if it's unacceptable, you fix it. And you hand it in again until it's acceptable. And that only happens like a few times. But I grade them on style, on writing style, because when I want you to finish the course, I want you to be able to write much better than when you start the course. So I grade them on writing style, fixing the writing, and structure. So you're taking these ideas that are coming out, writing about them, not summarizing the book so much as you're integrating the book with politics, integrating the book coming out with, oh, this is the political applications that we see out of this, out of this book, and putting that into a paper. Papers are not long, two and a half pages. Okay, so if you... To actually, they, two and a half is about the bottom line for it, they go up to three, three and a half pages max, okay? And you write them. They usually are written before each, uh, once a week basically is what you're writing in the middle. Sometimes stretch one, every, there'll be breaks once every two weeks because, you know, there'll be a spring break and there'll be certain days that are off and holidays and so on. So. It averages about one paper every week and a half, two and a half page paper. So it's not really a lot of work in terms of writing, but it's regular work. Whereas in another course you'd have, well look, let's say we read ten novels. What's two and a half times ten? Twenty-five. So you're talking about a twenty-five page work that's acceptable. So in another course, you're, you know, the whole course can be built on a big paper that you have to write at the end. So what I do is I chop it up into little pieces. The same amount of writing is involved, but it's in smaller chunks. And so I'll be talking to you about how to integrate these ideas and how to write these papers. And we will be talking about the style. I'll be correcting your grammar, focusing on paragraphs, how to write paragraphs. So this, this is an intensive writing type of course that's going to make you a much better writer. It's no more work than any of your other courses. It's just spread out over the whole semester in manageable chunks rather than everything piled up on the end. One good thing when it comes to the end of the semester, you're done with the course and everybody else is giving you finals. Mm -hmm. So there's no tests. So what happens with regard to the grade? If the, grades are if the papers are acceptable or unacceptable, if they're unacceptable, that means there's something wrong. 
and that's my job as a professor to fix it. That's why you're paying the tuitions to come here to Emory. You're not paying here to coming here paying for me to evaluate you. You're coming here to become a better person. And if there's something wrong with your writing, <laughs> come come heck or high water, that's my job. I'm supposed to fix it. So I fix it. And once it's and then I say do this, so I'll give you explicit instructions on what to fix. So if the papers are graded on an acceptable or unacceptable basis, what's the end grade? What's that? No, but I have to give a grade, a letter grade. There is only one grade. If they're acceptable, and that's what I'm doing, the A is the only thing you can get. The only way you can get less than an A is if you don't fix the papers. I've never had that done. I mean, I've never ever had a... I've been teaching at the university level for... You know, since 1981, I've never had a student not fixed it. No, I did. I did. I remember now. I had a graduate student once who refused. Uh, and I had to give him a B in a course. And um, he was eventually kicked out of the program. Not by me, but by other professors who he was having terrible problems with. And that was the end. I mean, that was the one case. <laughs> but, but, you know, <coughs> at a, since 1981, that, he just wouldn't fix papers, didn't hand them in, had no papers to grade sometimes, never showed up to class. Had a problem with that student. But in general, it's almost impossible to get anything less than an A in the class because as long as you show up... So the real trick for this class is just to do your reading, try to get to bed a little earlier... Mondays and Wednesdays so you're awake on Tuesday morning and Tuesday and Thursday mornings and just make sure you put time into reading these books so that you have a two and a half page to three and a half page paper that you can write about to synthesize it now we don't need citations you know what's a good model for the types of papers that you're going to be reading I mean writing the opinion columns in the New York Times. If you look at the New York Times and go to the front section, the A section, look at the last page of the front section. The second to last page of the front section will be the, the editorials. The, the page opposite that on the right side will be the opinion columns. And that's where you get columns written by, oh, some of you must know, who are some of the columnists? Is Dear Heavy in the New York Times? Uh, well, it's sort of like that, but it's it's the it's that version of the new. But these are political columnists. Who wrote Tuesdays with Maury? What's that? Tuesdays with Maury, that writer. I say it again. You know the book Tuesdays with Maury. Okay. Ever heard that book? Tuesdays is boring. No, Tuesdays with Maury. Oh, okay. Tuesdays with Maury. Yeah. That guy, the author of that book, writes column. Oh, okay. Oh, you. Oh, okay. All right. All right. He's famous. He's famous. Yeah. Well, let me. Let me mention some of the names of the columnists that are that are that are well known. And maybe I'm not sure this guy Moria. I don't remember. He may be. You think he's a columnist? Also, he works. He he shows yeah, up in the New York Times. Yeah, he's kind of like a controversial um, column. Can in I the I, in the New York Times. Yeah. Okay. I'll look at that. I'll look at that. Famous names that we often end up reading in class are uh, Thomas Friedman. Mm. Yeah. Okay. He writes about the Middle East a lot, but also he writes about the need for studying math and science and innovating in math and science here in the United States in the economy. He also writes about uh, the need to, for our economy to turn green in the sense of become heavy investments in in green technologies so that we are competitive. We're 
we're buying only one dollar of Chinese goods for every six dollars. No, we're buying one. We're buying six dollars of Chinese goods for every one dollar that they buy from us, which is a six to one imbalance. Which basically means that the Chinese are building things that we that, that are good to buy, and we're not building anything that's good to, that's good to sell. And Thomas Friedman really hammers on that. Nicholas Kristof is another uh, columnist in the New York Times that also writes about that same theme. And he's also done some really spectacular articles on on sexual slavery in uh, around the world. Uh, un- unbelievable opinion columns on that. And then there's Maureen Dowd, who's a liberal political columnist who actually writes some political columns that are uh, hilariously funny in how she lampoons uh, the establishment, uh, the president, the vice president, and so on. And then, uh, let me see, there's... Um, William Sapphire used to work for the New York Times, but he retired, and he was replaced by David Brooks, who writes the conservative Republican, who's one of the guys that writes the one of the two conservative Republican uh, columnists in the New York Times. And he also appears on the News Hour with Jim Lehrer on Friday nights on public television. So those are, uh, you know, some of the columnists that, that write in styles. And Turney is another columnist in the New York Times that also writes a conservative column. So those are the columns that are that write in styles of the type that you'll be writing. They're short pieces, about 785 pages, uh, 785 words. That's the, you know, the typical length of those columns. And those two and a half the three and a half page papers are uh, sort of in that ballpark for writing something like that. So basically what you're doing is you're taking these ideas that they have in the science fiction stuff and writing them with opinionated prose, writing about them with opinionated prose and integrating it with politics. So that's what we'll be doing. And you'll be having about 10, 12 shots at being able to do that. And... So one of the things, in addition to being a better writer at the end of the course, let me make sure, let me look at the clock, make sure I don't go over. Oh, yeah. One of the things that you'll get, as well as being a better writer at the end of the course, is an ability to express your opinions. Because you really don't want to just live your whole life writing about what other people say in a neutral fashion. You want to do something. You want to shake things. You are going to be the future in... In 20 years, I guarantee you, I guarantee you, I can see into the future. In 20 years, you're 40 years old. I can see it. (laughs) And the people who are 40 now are going to be, (laughs) I can see it now, 60. (laughs) And they're going to be retiring. And that means you're going to be replacing them. Okay, and when you replace them, you're going to be movers and shakers. So I guarantee you, coming from Emory, you're going to be movers and shakers. And you're going to be doing things in the world with a whole generation coming from schools, intellectuals coming from schools everywhere. And so you want to be able to form your opinions and express your opinions to move and to shake. You don't want to become a paper-pushing bureaucrat. You want to use your brain to do things, to make this place rock. So this is how you learn. You learn by having experience, writing ideas that really focus you, get you out there, 
coming in with new ideas. That's why Thomas Friedman, Nicholas Kristof, David Brooks, others, that's why they're so valued. Maureen Dowd, they're so valued because they come up with new ideas, new ways of thinking about things that other people aren't thinking about, and they just throw it in your face with a strongly worded column. We're actually going to read one of the great books you're going to love reading, Ender's Game. You're going to read about how Ender's sister and brother, his evil brother and his, his good sister, became essentially political columnists working on the internet putting their articles all over the place and ended up become, you know, changing the way the whole planet was evolving the galaxy ultimately so uh, you know putting your ideas in forceful form are really important and the science fiction really helps you sort of get that new bent that new orientation so you're not making a cookie cutter argument that's similar to what a zillion other people are doing you're coming in with a new idea that's radical that's different putting things in a new perspective science fiction helps you get that and so science fiction actually does talk about technology but it also talks about politics and that's what's so overlooked in so much of society the political content of science fiction so that's what we're going to be pulling out we'll be ooing and eyeing the technology but what's really interesting is the uh, the social content the political and social content of science fiction and so much of science fiction becomes real anyway in terms of technology you know January I think it was January 5th just a couple of weeks ago a major now award winning instantly award winning paper by two physicists coming out of Germany that has gained interest by the US Air Force and so on is based on a new theory of physics that allows for uh, what's in a sense an, a new means of propulsion dealing with uh, magnetism I may have you read the article later not not that you'd understand the math the math is is really aimed at people who understand general relativity but the words around the math are phenomenal and the article is being taken very seriously it's the idea that if you have a sufficiently strong magnetic field you warp space around you and I'm talking really strong magnetic field. I mean really, really strong magnetic field. You need a level of magnetism that the U.S. government can make with millions of dollars, but you and I cannot do with a trip to Radio Shack. Didn't the French do something like that with a frog? They discovered that if they used a giant magnet, they could, um, they could levitate a frog in a cylinder. That's an interesting thing. I don't know about that. And they did the same thing with water droplets. That now I know you can levitate things that conduct electricity. So the water in a frog may be able to be that. You can do that with uh, metal, yeah, for example. But this is different. Where if you have a sufficiently strong magnetic field, and I'm talking way stronger than than that. I mean, like zillions of times stronger than that. You apparently can warp space, and what happens is that the it, they're talking about in terms of a propulsion system where the, the ship that contains that generates this magnetic field warps space around and it essentially slips into a different dimensional uh, field a different, a different it goes to the, the fifth dimension <laughs> another dimension Isn't it like a power problem though? How do you get enough power to make the magnet? Yeah, but the theory is though that that might be possible if you could have the power you could make the magnet you could make the electromagnetic field and then what happens is by modulating the field you 
the, with the ship disappears. It just vanishes. You don't see it. By modulating the field without using any type of, you know, Newtonian type of thrust, no rocket thrust, you can actually use the magnetic field to move. To, 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 to move. The bottom line is a trip to Mars is 11 hours. A trip to another star system is 80 days. Uh, and and you know and serious scientists are talking about this now, whereas before you were talking you, you circumvent the speed of light. Actually, the speed of you, you still have relativistic speeds of light, but light travels at a different speed in that dimensional realm. <laughs> so, you, you, and as soon as you turn off the magnet, you pop back into real space. So you're there, and then you're not there, and then suddenly, eleven hours later, a trip to the moon, a few hours. Uh, do you get the idea? And this is serious. This is serious. These are two, two serious physicists who published this article, and it's gaining serious attention. So, you know, I don't know what is going to happen with regard to this line of thought. But you see how science fiction suddenly is becoming real. Well, as soon as you're talking about interstellar travel as being possible, then the social stuff of science fiction becomes very real because then it's not not no longer an idea just science fiction in order to travel but once you travel then it's the social size what do you do when you get there okay science fiction used to be you could build a boat that could float across the atlantic ocean it's how can you it's this the atlantic ocean stops i can see the horizon right there it stops right there the earth is flat that was science fiction technology finally got to the point where we could build a boat and then we discovered how we could get around the horizon not fall off the end of the earth find out the earth was round and you got to the new world and then what happens then it's no longer the issue of science fiction of creating a boat that can do it then it's social stuff it immediately becomes a social question the creation of the new world <laughs> and then all the issue of slavery indentured servants all that stuff social problems so you see how science fiction starting with technology leads right into social questions and political questions and then we have some science fiction writers that overtly grip the social phenomenon itself within the science fiction genre, such as Ursula Le Guin, and we'll be reading some of her works as well. What did she write other than The Wizard of Earthsea? Well, she wrote The Left Hand of Darkness. I believe we're going to be reading that. She's written, um, she's written books that deal with the subject of anarchy, as well as gender politics, as well as socialism. Very interesting writer. Very, very interesting writer. And you'll read one of them. See, that's, this is one of the questions. And she closely embeds social theory into her science fiction novels. Really closely. And a lot of social scientists read them. So, when you get out of the course, you'll write better. <coughs> as, long as, you do, as long as you get to bed early enough to show up and be able to, you know, be awake. And keep reading, keeping up to date with the reading of the novels, and doing your two and a half page papers. Piece of cake. Two and a half, three pages going on, and then correcting anything that I say you have to correct. Okay? You walk out with an A, a better writer, and a, most importantly than anything, a new way of thinking about politics. And now when you read science fiction, it won't just be like Hussein was saying in high school, and then I wanted to get back to it. Now you read it to come up with, I need a new theory, a new social theory. I need something to, what, what, what something I can put into a senior thesis, or you're going to all go into graduate school, do something new in graduate school. 
you might go to some science fiction works and sort of say, let me think differently for a little while. And you might come up with those ways that'll help you in, the, in, in coming up with uh, new ideas that you'll do in your other work, whatever you go into. Be it a doctor, be it a lawyer, be it a business school person, you'll have the motivation to find the time because you'll know what you need to get. You need to think differently. And they'll help you in that way. What, any, any other thoughts you might have? Now, first thing we're going to do is uh, we're going to read um, these two to start off with. Okay? So let's read a little bit about empires. And immediately this weekend, be sure you finish this one and this one. Um, let me see. You know, there's one... There's uh, in, there's two ways to do with this. One is to read the Empire thing, and then the first two uh, is to read this book, this, the Empire book. Second, I mean, after we read the novel. But I sort of think it's good to get a short history of what empires are all about, because you start out with the collapse of the empire. So let's get a short history. And this thing is really fast. This Oxford book, it's only nine dollars or ten dollars or something like that, and it's only 100, 120 pages, 129 pages. So it's like to breeze through this really fast. But for sure, over the weekend, by Monday night, make sure you have read this one. And then um, these two. These two. Okay? And then Tuesday and Thursday, starting Tuesday night, Thursday night, finish up these. So that by the time you get to Friday, you're done, you're done with these two. Your first paper will be due the following Tuesday. Meaning, your first two and a half to three and a half page paper will be due not next week, but the Tuesday after that. So you'll have read the three books in the series, plus this very short book uh, by Stephen Howe, Empire, a very short introduction. Okay? And that, and then you'll write the first. And we'll talk on Tuesday, next Tuesday. Tuesday we're going to be talking about empires in general from Stephen Howe's book and the first book of the novels of the series. Okay? And then on Thursday we're going to be talking about the other two. And so you know, Tuesday and Wednesday night, you'll be sort of knock one out Tuesday one night and knock the other out Wednesday night. And then you have all the time on the weekend to work on your two-and-a-half-page paper. Okay? These, again, these will go really quick. And if you still have a little to read in the third novel after class on Thursday, that'll still be okay, as long as you've gotten through enough of it. So that you're... Believe me, once you get through the first one, I won't have to pressure you to finish you're going to want to know what happens. <laughs> so, you know, the rest of the novels will go by themselves. And then, just as long as everything's done, for sure, by Friday, so you have Saturday and Sunday to just work on the two-and-a-half-page paper. Well, that's great. Uh, we won't be taking attendance until... Mm, well, drop ad finishes on... on uh, next Friday. Okay, so we won't take attendance till after that because there might be some people still coming into classes.